0: Somebody asked me not too long ago, are you afraid? I'm like, yeah, and <laughs> we're all are. We're terrified. Everybody's afraid. Courage isn't measured in whether or not you're afraid. Courage is measured in whether or not you do what you need to do despite the fear.
1: Welcome to Exit 43, where we take a deep dive into things you probably didn't know about. My name is Jordan Fenster. This week, once again, we'll be talking about issues around coronavirus. But I, for one, am looking forward to a time when we can talk about something else. Hopefully, that will be soon. So I'd like to begin with a question. How do you weigh one life against another? Does it matter what they do or who they know? If you had to choose a man in his 30s or a woman in her 70s, Which would you pick? This is a rhetorical exercise for me, and probably for you too. But there are healthcare providers right now, making those decisions in real time.
2: Um, A lot of it depends on their status, right? When when they're coming in. So you may have heard on even in the news that now even EMS and EMT have been given new criteria. So you know if somebody is having uh, let's say a cardiac arrest out in the field, as they say. So um, before they get to the hospital, uh, there's now new guidelines on how long you resuscitate them for before establishing that likely, okay, this, uh, this is futile, you know, or a point of no return.
1: That's Dr. Purvi Parikh, a member of Physicians for Patient Protection.
2: Uh, and I'm an immunologist, uh, as well as an allergy and asthma specialist uh, here in New York City.
1: Parikh said that resources are so tight at hospitals in New York City that they've changed their guidelines on how long doctors and nurses are supposed to spend trying to resuscitate a patient.
2: Some- unfortunately, as soon as they get through the door of the hospital, they're, they're already crashing or uh, close to uh, crashing. And, and those two, um, many hospitals have changed how aggressively they'll revive certain people. And it, it's all due to resources, you know, because if you have a finite number of doctors and nurses and techs and multiple people are coming in, um, in very critical states, you have to kind of divide and conquer in the best way possible, you know, and you, and, you, and it's it's very individualistic the decisions you know so because every patient has a different prognosis for survival right based on their age and their um, comorbidities and you know how long they've been sick you know
1: what we're talking about here is called mass casualty triage and before we go any further i thought i should introduce you to dale smith
3: I'm the professor of military medicine and history at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences in Bethesda, Maryland.
1: Smith teaches history to soldiers.
3: I do. Soldiers, sailors, airmen, and an occasional Marine.
1: While we might think of mass casualty triage as something that happens only on a battlefield, Smith said that's not accurate.
3: Let's start with a definition of a mass casualty. A mass casualty is one more patient than you can take care of with quality care. Um, If you're a surgeon and you're at a party with a pocket knife and somebody does a drive-by shooting and three people get shot, you have a mass casualty situation because you've got no help. You're one person and you don't have all your kit.
1: Triage happens during every emergency. It's a way to sort patients. If your life isn't in danger, you might have to wait for hours in an emergency room, while patients with life-threatening emergencies see a doctor immediately.
3: In an emergency room, you sort the patients because you're going to give everybody just an equitable care. Time is the variable you're using because time's what you've got the most of for some people. In a mass casualty situation, time is not the variable anymore. The variable now is a resource the limited number of providers for the number of patients. The resource could also be equipment. That's Mm -hmm. one of the things we've worried about a lot in this current epidemic. Are there enough ventilators? If there are not enough ventilators, who gets the ventilator?
1: The idea of sorting patients in need of care goes back thousands of years. Well, I'll let Smith tell it.
3: Best we can tell, about 1700 B.C., Egyptians began to sort patients on whether they were going to get better or not, that category of expectant. And in the Ebers Papyrus, there is a phrase, moor him to his mooring stakes. That is, give him his nutrition, he's going to die, there's nothing I can do to him. It doesn't get much more refined than that until the Middle Ages when surgeons began to be able to do a little bit about bleeding. In the Middle Ages, Sorting was done by class. The Duke got taken care of before the Baron and the Baron before the soldier. With the French Revolution, this idea of that equality of mankind was important allowed Dominique Jean Larrey, the great French military surgeon in Napoleon's Guard to articulate again, we will take them in the order of medical need. And while I can cite examples of isolated people who did that earlier without philosophical underpinnings of equity, fraternity, and liberty. It wouldn't have gone anywhere. But once Ray publishes it in that context, it becomes normative even in places that aren't democratic over the course of the 19th century.
1: Most of the time, mass casualty triage decisions are made on the basis of need. You focus on the people who are in the greatest need. And who have the greatest chance of survival based on the care you can provide at that moment?
3: It's not an easy conversation to have, but if you've got a 75 year old, which is alarmingly close to, to real for me, and a 25 year old, and, and
1: you've got one ventilator, where do you put it? There's also the question of utility. If you have a doctor in need of personal protective equipment or care, you might choose to put your resources there.
3: If it's really bad, I want the people that can get back to the fight treated first because, well, if we lose, we lose. That kind of social tension is very hard to do in the moment. It's impossible to do retrospectively because now you can't sort out the social from the clinical. Perhaps the 25-year-old had type 1 diabetes and was being kept alive, and the comorbidity is going to kill him anyway, and the 75-year-old with 15 more years of permanent life has more social utility. Have I lost you again?
1: But this is not ancient Egypt, or the French Revolution. Healthcare workers are facing these decisions every day, right now. And when this is all over, many of those decisions will be questioned.
3: It's more than a math problem. It's a math problem with multiple unknowns. A clinician can look at two patients, and say, my best judgment is this one is going to die and this one's going to live. We've all heard stories of the cancer doctor who gave you six months, 12 years ago. Clinical judgment is good, but not infallible. Social judgment is terribly risky. The Nazis made a bunch of social judgments that for the most part we don't approve of, on who was worth more than who else. Social judgments are are hard and almost, Always, when you look back, they're going to be critics.
1: Of course, not only doctors make these decisions. When there's a shortage of virus test kits and the governor decides to focus them on healthcare workers, that's not a medical decision. That's a matter of policy.
3: It's important in our society that that decision was made by an elected official and not the doctor. The doctor makes the clinical judgment on who's apt to survive. Utility decisions are not medical decisions. The commander says, I want the people taken care of who can come back to the fight, not the doctor. The governor says, this is the way we're going to spend these limited resources. This is a social decision. Utility decisions have to be social decisions. The society has to say, young people are more valuable than old people. We'll test the providers. I'm now changing the social parameter. Instead of aristocrats first, it's everybody equally on the basis of medical need.
1: More on this in just a minute.
0: Exit 43 is a production of Hearst Connecticut Media. If you liked this podcast, please consider subscribing to our newspapers by visiting ctinsider.com.
1: Welcome back to exit 43 I'm your guide Jordan Fenster at the beginning of the episode I started with Jennifer Figueroa Delgado
0: Jennifer Figueroa Delgado well it's technically Dr. Jennifer Figueroa Delgado but
1: (laughs) she's been a nurse and a nurse practitioner for decades
0: i mean i've been a nurse a nurse in one way or another since 1997 mm-hmm. and um we never experienced anything like this so um yes there was the hiv and all of that but that, that was a little before my time but you know we had 9-11 and I, we didn't experience anything like that during that time um when it came to healthcare workers you know there was always the supplies everything was always available now
1: that doesn't mean she's never dealt with a mass casualty situation
0: In healthcare, there are always situations such as that when you're dealing with, um, you know, trauma situations, accidents, you know, where there's mass mass, mass casualties, you'll have situations where, you know, there's triaging going on, right? You know, this person can make it, this person can't. How do we do that? You know, so where do we put services? You know, when you're dealing with situations like wartime situations where you see that kind of that happening, that is... We, You know, we're not strangers to that. That's how that works.
1: But this is a worldwide pandemic. And when it comes to mass casualty triage, there are factors in the algorithm that doctors and nurses have never had to face before, like health insurance. Dr. Perik said albuterol, a commonly prescribed drug for asthmatics, is in very short supply. In part because people are hoarding it, but also because insurance companies are making decisions, she said, should be in the hands of physicians.
2: So, and, and, and that also makes it a little bit more complicated because, uh, to be honest, they shouldn't really be the ones making that decision because, and this is just my own personal opinion, <laughs> because they're not the ones that are assessing the patient. I've heard reports of even emergency um, procedures actually being denied during this time by insurance companies, and I, I don't think that that's necessarily the right thing. You know, um, it, it should really be the physicians and team that's evaluating the patient, that's making that decision, because you know they're not there. You know, so um, th- there can be a lot of unintended consequences that way too.
1: Now, when you think about resources during mass casualty situations you think about the availability of masks or ventilators or doctors.
2: I'm getting reports out of some hospitals in the Bronx, for example, and in Brooklyn that they're even low on things such as oxygen tanks and IV poles and things like that.
1: But knowledge is as much of a resource as any other. That's what Tina Dernick has been focusing on.
2: I am a float nurse for Bacchus Hospital. So I float to any, any unit you can imagine. I go to the ER, I go to the critical care unit, cardiac, medical, surgical, um, labor and delivery.
1: As a float nurse, Dernick knows how to do everything. And she's been training other nurses who don't have the same level of experience.
2: My main job for the past four weeks just training other staff to be comfortable with ventilators, with really, really sick people, and all the medications that come along with it. And that's been probably one of the biggest preparations that we've been doing, just to have staff available for those cases.
1: Yes, ventilators are in short supply, but what is a ventilator worth if you don't have a healthcare professional who knows how to use it? Equipment
3: and people go together the way a hand and glove does.
2: People have re- been redeployed in uh, from every specialty, you know. So. Um there's orthopedic surgeons now that are, you know, working in the emergency room. And the same goes for dermatologists and ophthalmologists. So everybody, it's kind of an all hands on death approach. To take it one step further, there's actually, um, government has lifted restrictions on a lot of non-physician providers as well. So, um, you know, a lot of states are now allowing nurse practitioners and physician assistants to also kind of practice independently um, without supervision. And and I have mixed feelings about that because one, yes, we do need all hands on deck, but these are very, very sick patients. They're extremely complex. So they have complex cardiac issues, infectious issues, immune issues, lung issues. So the the problem is um, if you don't have even just like the basic foundation of medical school, uh, a lot of these decisions that are being made at split seconds could could mean life or death because it is such a critically ill patient.
1: And there's one more resource I wanted to look at, mental health. As Figueroa Delgado noted, a car crash is a moment in time. A hurricane might last a day or two.
0: Uh, What's going on now is a little more extended, you know? It's happening not just in in a very short period of time, it's happening over weeks. You know, especially in the beginning days of this where everybody was coming in and a lot of people needed ventilators and there wasn't enough ventilators and there wasn't enough beds and not not enough ICU beds and what do we do? We don't have enough staff.
1: And making these decisions is having an effect on our healthcare workers the doctors and nurses who are caring for the sickest patients.
2: And I know it is um, taking a considerable uh, mental toll on most healthcare workers. And I I anticipate, similar to what happened with 9-11, there's going to be years and years of post-traumatic stress as a result of it.
1: This is a reality Dr. Parikh and Dernick and Figueroa Delgado and just about every other nurse and doctor in the world is facing. Right now,
2: honestly speaking, uh, like this past Monday, um, as soon as I woke up, I got news that a, a close family friend had passed away, and, and she's a physician. And then her father, also who is a physician, is um, still in the intensive care unit. So it, it, that, you know, Monday, I, I was not okay, you know, and, and all of my friends and family knew that, you know, but luckily, I have a good support system to vent, you know, so it's one of those things that everyone is taking it, you know, one day at a time. It's a daily thing, on an you know, all-day thing. You
0: know, <laughs> Imagine the people that have to make these decisions.
1: This is Exit 43. My name is Jordan Fenster. If you have a story you'd like to tell, or if you're just feeling isolated and need to reach out, send me an email at jordan.fenster at com. Thanks for listening. And remember, stay home if you can and stay safe.